Slavoj Žižek, it's such a pleasure to hear you again. If you were keeping a diary of these times in America, your times, our times, what would you be noting down? Movies, media, the end of Yankee Stadium, Sarah Palin, up, down, or sideways, the fall of Wall Street. Where do we begin? Ah, what fascinated me is the contrast between Republican convention and its rhetorics and this Wall Street banking crash, whatever. No, mm. because how, on the one hand, you know, all these rhetorics, uh, uh, less state, less state spending, no bullshitting, all this posturing, and then all of a sudden you have a nice banking crash and we are back to socialist, big, unimaginable uh, uh, state intervention, my God, almost one trillion dollars, my mm. God, President Bush should be nominated, I think, a honorary member of the American Communist Party now, no? <laughs> yeah, no, you see, we, we got here, I liked it, a touch of reality, like, it reminded us that all that stuff about less state spending, less state intervention is truly one big bullshit. This is capitalist reality today. It's not just market. It's mm. how mar it was a great reminder how market, in order not to self-destruct itself, needs more and more mega-state interventions. Mm -hmm. This is the reality of today's capitalism. So forget about all that bullshit, we need less state, and so on and so on. On the contrary, the state mechanisms are getting stronger and stronger. The security... Uh, military apparatus, the financial interventions, mm. all, the, all that stuff, and so on and so on. And isn't it how all that Sarah Palin posturing and McCain, I'm an honest guy, experience, and so on, it all of a sudden became irrelevant. Did you notice how when the topic shifted to these financial problems, all they started to mumble, the whole rhetoric changed. It was a wonderful reminder, a kind of, how do you call it, a reality check, like where we are. And all that talk about Washington. We're against Washington. We don't believe in Washington. We don't believe in government. Yeah, but, but do, you, do you see the irony? I, yeah, what I claim is that, uh, I mean, uh, what does this effectively mean? Because isn't it that when they say uh, we don't believe in Washington and so on and so on, but as even many intelligent or minimally honest conservatives noticed, but the reality of the last 20, 30 years here, political reality, is that Republicans strengthened Washington, much more. Like, it started with President Bush. Public debt exploded with him. I remember a wonderful, almost funny answer by, no, sorry, Bush, Reagan. Remember when a, a, a journalist asked Reagan when he was president, what about the exploding public debt? He, he said uh, something like, oh, it's big enough to take care of itself, I don't worry about it, and so on and so on. So the irony is that it was, as we all know, Clinton who... Uh, stabilized a little bit, diminished the debt, and then it exploded now. So what interests me is uh, how the whole scene has changed and what, uh, I mean, uh, 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 about functioning of the market, state intervention and so on. And it's almost a miracle how the old rhetorics of, you know, Washington bashing and so on survived. But for me, this is just the same old story. Do you remember when Newt Gingrich became the speaker? No, how he also he also led a whole uh, populist revolt and so on and so on. Contract with America. Contract, yeah, and 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 all that stuff. So I don't think it's a changed even at this level. What interests me is again what is the real message. Yes. I used in some of my talks recently. This reference to you know a good old Hollywood leftist film, uh, John Carpenter, They Live, where the guy, the hero of the film, finds some strange. Uh, 
some strange sunglasses yes. in, a, in a band of church puts them on and then you see reality where you see with your ordinary eyes just a nice publicity for a trip to Mexico whatever uh, uh, laying on the sun on a beach the true message says don't think consume enjoy or whatever no so what we, we were to see if we were to observe the presidential campaign with all this I think we get a different message the first message would have been uh, like all this talk about change, real change. It's like we will, the true message of the Republicans is we will change something so that basically nothing will change. And I think this is not some big Marxist denouncing. It's how their own message really functions. Everybody knows that, how should I put it naively, you know all that lipstick metaphor, know that McCain is... Bush with a lipstick, a rhetorical lipstick of honesty, no bullshitting, and so on. But it's the same. So uh, uh, I think that the message, the true message to Republican voters is let's have some fun. Let's pretend that we have a populist revolt, but you can trust us. We have dark backroom boys like Dick Cheney, like Karl Rove and others who will do the dirty job. It's better for you not to know about it and so on and so on. I think the true message to Republican voters is you have the right not to understand what has to be done. You have the right, you, our voters, to play the game, the game of populism, transparency and so on and so on. The second thing which worried me a, a little bit more is this Sarah Palin operation, namely, as I improvised in some of my talks recently, what fascinated me and some guys, friends of mine in France noticed it, is that there is something new in the Palin phenomenon. What? Did you notice how till now the majority of successful feminine politicians played the phallic masculine game. They presented mm. themselves as more masculine, more tough guys than men themselves. Mm. Margaret Thatcher, the true Iron Lady, Indira Gandhi, Golda Meir, up even to a little bit clearly Hillary Clinton has had some of this cold beak, tougher than Bill, who is soft and so on. And I claim that here it's a different phenomenon. Sarah Palin proudly displays her femininity. It's a kind of a dream of, I can be a woman, so the way she rhetorically tries to win over men is not by being more masculine than men. It's mobilizing this typical feminine rhetorical resort, which is... Uh, this uh, sarcastic undermining of male authority, like ha-ha-ha, community organizing, like it mobilizes this deeply feminist uh, rhetorical device, which is mocking male authority, you mm. know, this is like men are bombastic, big phrases and so on, a woman can afford this kind of sarcasm and so on, and I think, of course, at a certain level, rhetorically it rhetorically it. It works. So, but you know what I really worry about? Now I come to my real worry about these elections. I claim that the way it functions is that the message, the Republican message between the lines is, look, this is all a big game. We will try to do it a little bit better, but don't worry. There will be no real change. But what if, what if they will really change something, but change in, in the worst, change in the direction of our country first, uh, drill baby, drill, and so on and so on. In other words, what if we should apply to Republicans, you know that old Marx Brothers joke, this man looks as an idiot, acts as an idiot, but this shouldn't deceive you, this man is an idiot, no? <laughs> something like Republicans talk about change, act as if they won't change, but this shouldn't deceive you, they really will change things. Mm. That's the greatest danger, I think, that they mean it seriously. Well, 
I want you to go back a minute because you're describing what the whole country in a way is going through. Ordinary people one by one are waking sort of from a dream or coming out of a movie and they're saying uh, – I guess it was bullshit about a you know an open free market where people take risks and suffer losses. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're, we're we're waking up to something, and it's a uh, what what are we going through? I claim now to just give you uh, of course simplified, but nonetheless I think by basically accurate formula. Uh, the the Republican message is. We will do the dirty job. We, we, we allow you to go on dreaming. That is just the big state, Washington, nothing really wrong. With a little bit of honesty, we can fix it and so on. The game goes on, but you owe, you, you owe another trillion dollars. Yeah, but, 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 yeah, 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 but, but they, they somehow, uh, you know what, uh, you know the Kantian, uh, you need philosophy, European philosophy to understand this. Please. You know that uh, the Kantian notion of sublime, he speaks about mathematical sublime, which is overwhelming, irrepresentable, because the quantity is so great. What does it mean, a trillion? It's irrepresentable. Mm. It means nothing. And you can play with this. Like, what do, does it people? Okay, some big money, you know. Uh, when you go beyond a couple of billions of dollars... The differences basically become ir- irrelevant, and I think Republicans are playing on this. They do, they're doing the exact opposite, the biggest state spending imaginable, but somehow it doesn't catch on. People don't mm. really perceive it. So I think, again, that that's their basic message. It's, we will allow you to go on dreaming. That, dreaming what? The old American dream. It's still this good old America where honesty and hard work helps and so on, all this. We will keep it alive. But then the message is, we all know that this is not reality, that somebody has do things like this, spend one trillion dollars, do all the dirty things. But we have our backroom boys who will do it discreetly. So I think that with all my doubts about, I have no illusions about Barack Obama and so on, but he's nonetheless closer to awakening. He's closer to awakening, Mm. I think. You you know, I was going to say, the Chinese Olympics woke some people up. Uh, This trillion-dollar bill will wake others up. Iraq... Maybe, maybe. I I doubt, I doubt, you know. It all depends on ideological constellation. Like, you know, uh, sorry to interrupt you, but this is for me a crucial lesson. Whenever you have shocking events... In any sense, natural disaster, military terrorist disaster, economic disaster, no. Disasters only open the situation. The Mm. old legitimization, you are awakened in the sense of the old legitimization disintegrates. But then it's an open field who will win the struggle for imposing the predominant interpretation. Like, for me, September 11th, in this sense, was a lost opportunity because... Mm. The right-wingers determined the field, determined how September 11th was perceived. They imposed their narrative. What I'm afraid is, again, that the same thing can happen here. What I'm saying is that, look, the big example is what? Megalomaniac. And I'm not playing the stupid game of comparing Bush to Hitler. I don't go so far. But remember Germany in the 20s. It was all one big shock. And the battle was which ideology will impose itself as a predominant narrative. Hitler won. Hitler won before winning in reality. He won the ideological battle in the sense of people, when they experience the situation, I lost my, I lost all my savings in the bank. I lost my job. There is too much immorality in cinema, decadence, Weimar. How did they understand it? They accepted into their guts Hitler's narrative. What I am afraid is that Mm. Not only there is no real radical left here, but even the Democrats 
it looked at some point, but I wonder if they will succeed in imposing their narrative. But I agree with you, it's a crucial situation today. This is a danger, but at the same time a chance. These open situations. Who will impose a narrative? It's a big question. Do you, do you want to try out a, a, a left narrative in this conversation? What would it sound like? Okay, the left narrative is a, is a, is a simple one. It's the, the first, but it cannot be, unfortunately, translated into a convincing, a convincing ideological edifice to, to, mobilize, to mobilize people. No? Yeah, give, it, give it to us straight. We'll see if we can translate it. No, no, no. Uh, my point is only that it's much more modest point that, that, no, because, wait a minute, the left today has a real problem, I think. The problem is that the left really does not have, cannot even pretend today to have a global alternative. Everybody knows, we read uh, Naomi, sorry, uh, 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 Naomi Klein and so on, how the system works, blah, blah, blah. But what's the alternative? Like, do we have a global alternative or is it all we want? In the same sense that when I was young, we were talking, dreaming about socialism with a human face, global mm. capitalism with a human face. Like, that's my point. I think that the left, although Obama looked, it appeared that he's offering more. But I don't think the Democratic Party really stepped out of what I call John Kerry syndrome. You remember four years ago, what was sure. the problem with John Kerry? Is that he was Bush, what he was offering was Bush with a human face, you know. More yeah. respect for our allies, more this, more that. But basically, uh, this is why I think uh, the so-called liberal left in the United States is so much legalistic and moralizing. Like, they, they like these problems of, you know, human rights, legal status, whatever, because, because they, they don't really have a, a truly global vision of what to do with the global system. And I'm not reproaching them. I think that simply, how should I put it, I'm a moderate pessimist. In what sense? I think that it's clear from all these signs and so on that the system we have now, global financial system, not only capitalist system, is in a way fragile. The fact mm. is that United States are, are losing their hegemony of the 90s. We are moving slowly towards a new multicentric world with China, Russia, yes. other local centers of power. And in this process of transition, we haven't yet found a new stability. It may appear that nothing is happening, but I think slowly the contours of a new world order are forming themselves, and it's a dangerous moment. It's a dangerous moment because nobody really has even a clear idea where to move and so on. United States simply, I think, too much still behave as if they are the world policemen they almost were for some time in the 90s, which yeah. is why all these ridiculous complications with China or, on the other hand, with, with, uh, with uh, Georgia. This is, was, for me, a symptom, as it were, of the situation, the uh, Gruzia-Georgian crisis, no? We'll talk about I that, mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, 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 no, no, the problem for me was simply that uh, United States, as it were, got back the same message from, uh, from, uh, from Russia that it that the United States itself was giving to... Like, did you notice how Russians wonderfully referred to Kosovo? Like, if Kosovo can secede from Serbia, why not Ossetia and Abkhazia and so on, no? All yeah. that stuff. I mean, it's like they just did what United States were doing all the time. They just did that. I claim that it's all, to put it ironically, of course, a question of 
politeness, in the sense of the, the rule of the 90s post, of post-Soviet Russia, was this kind of a obscene pact between Western great powers and Russia. The rule was, we treat you, Russia, respectfully, you are invited to G7 summits and so on, on condition that you don't really act as a great power. You know, we treat mm. you respectfully if you don't really act on it. You are recognized as a great power, but don't act as one. And I think Russia got a little bit tired of this role. They, 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 they saw a chance for them to reassert their role. And I think United States here are at a loss. I mean, it's easy to occupy, to occupy a, 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 a weak, really weak, as we know, a country like Iraq, not to mention Afghanistan. But my God, already with North Korea, they can do anything, basically, and so on, no? I think very soon, and this will be the dangerous moment, United States will, will have to find a formula to dealing with the, with the limitation of its external politics. And I'm not here playing the usual America bashing, because let me be very frank. Now, this will annoy my leftist friends. I like to be hated by everyone, no? Uh, that uh, in today's world, multicentric world, it's not necessary that United States are always internationally the bad guy. I think one should be very open here. For example, in Burma, how do you call it now politically correct, Myanmar, no? Yes. There it's obviously a case of, and this is what leftist friends told me, Myanmar is de facto, it's a pure case of neocolonialism, it's a Chinese colony. Okay. And uh, so, again, there we have a totally different constellation and uh, all other uh, all, uh, other examples where, uh, as I usually put it, the problem I see today is that we have a couple of models competing. We have the model of American liberal global capitalism. We have the model of so-called Asian values capitalism, a code word, of course, for kind of authoritarian capitalism, which for me is something totally new. We don't have an answer. Uh, to eat. Mm. Like, you, just if you allow me to make this point, I think it's important. Like, you know, all this hope of Western liberals that you can be critical of capitalism, but at the end of the day, capitalism needs democracy. You can have 10, 20 years of, uh, of authoritarian rule, like in Chile, like in South Korea, but after some time, you need democracy. So, in other words, capitalism nonetheless brings democracy. I doubt if this still holds for China. I don't think that China will necessarily in 10 years turn democratic. What if they really invented a new social order where you can have capitalism, which is maybe even more creative in the capitalist sense of social dynamic, hmm. uh, dynamic, creative, productive than Western capitalism, but at the same time perfectly fitting some kind of authoritarian rule? I think that there is genuinely something new here. So the point is that all these options that are presenting themselves today, Western liberal capitalism, Asian values, Oriental more authoritarian capitalism, Latino American populism, and so on and so on, I like none of them. That's my problem. I like <laughs> none of them. I, I, I don't think we have a formula of what to strive. And I will go even a step further here. It's a horrible thing to say for a leftist. I don't even think that we really know where we are moving. What is happening today? What's the situation? All these formulas, postmodern society, informational society, whatever, they don't really work. They are still, I claim, how should I call them, journalistic formulas. Yes. Which is why I always plead for theory. Today is the time for theory. 
I hate those uh, humanitarian emergency rhetoric. People are starving. Forget about ideologies. Let's do something. No, we need basically to withdraw and think. What is going on today? We lack what, my friend, one of the surviving dinosaur American Marxist, Frederick Jameson, likes to call cognitive mapping. You know, a kind of a general idea where we are and what to do. We lack it. The, all the old narratives, liberal narrative, if something happened, if there is some truth in September 11th, namely in the claim that September 11th was a historical event, it was for me a historical event only in the sense that symbolically it marked the end of the Fukuyama dream that in spite of all the problems, wars that we go on, that in liberal democratic capitalism, we have the answer. Yes. And the point is only, you know, to make it better, more tolerant, blah, blah, blah. And the, the tragedy is that we should really accept it that we don't have the answer. But isn't it that even the large majority of today's left cannot think beyond this horizon? Their horizon is still... Uh, lib again, liberal democratic capitalism with a human face, more human rights, more tolerance, more whatever you want. I claim that's not enough. You've written about, you know, it's a, it's a laundry list of gay rights, minority rights, yeah, 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 yeah. anti-patriarchy, yeah. all that sort of thing. And it's not, it, it's not a theory. But let me stick on this theory question because it intrigues me whenever I hear you and read you. You said a moment ago we, we need European philosophy to know what's going on. You're also a god on campus uh, of the student generation growing up on postmodern theory. And you're always quoting Lacan, Derrida, and uh, Walter Benjamin, Heidegger, as well yeah, as yeah. Freud and Marx. When I was in college in the 60s, we never heard the word theory. Uh, and that was at Yale in, in a modern time. I, I keep wondering, what do the kids know? What are they learning from theory? And what did my generation miss? Let me give you here a precise answer. First, uh, uh, don't exaggerate, don't overrate my influence. Unfortunately, I'm here very self-critical. Uh, you know, people like me up to a point as a clown, and the game I'm consciously playing is uh, the game that I read somewhere, I love this, a history of preachers in the Wild West. How they were, most of them, they were magicians, you know. Magicians in these simple things, you know, rabbit out of the head tricks, no? First they, they performed some, yeah, some tricks to attract the public, and then came the God's message, no? Yeah. I play this game, popular culture, blah, 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 all that, to grasp the attention and then try to use this short attention span to get through a slightly more serious message. What I think is that maybe I've risked too much, I, I sacrificed too much, that much of the message gets lost. People want to hear these endless dirty jokes, structure of European toilets, whatever you want, no? But, but nonetheless, I think it's risk work. So, again, I'm not as optimist as you are, I think if anything, and this is for me the sad result of all this political correctness, post-colonial stuff and so on, that the, if anything, the attitude today is maybe even more than it was anti-theoretical. The predominant notion in campuses today, as far as I see it, it's still no theories wide dead men. We need narratives where each, each, uh, each group tells the, of their suffering and so mm. on. I always find repellent this idea that your story, the story of your suffering and so on, that it has any truth value. It doesn't have. I'm here absolutely European terrorist. The only truth is a theoretical truth. When you say the story of your suffering, it's meaningless mm -hmm. without theory. And we need 
terribly a kind of a mapping. And I don't think that we already are in a, how should I call it, theory revival. We are not yet enough there. Precisely because the list that you enumerated, you know, one has to introduce distinctions there. You mentioned, for example, postmodernism, Lacan, and so on and so on. But you know that we, we are the last Stalinists in the sense that we fight all the time. And I would say, no, that my true theoretical endeavor is precisely to break with the whole series of this deconstructionist, postmodern, politically correct, multiculturalist dogmas. Like, I'm here going to the end just to awaken people. For example, to provoke people when I'm asked about racism. No? Yes. I like to, to do my line, which is, I love racism. I cannot imagine my life without racism. There is no progressive movement today without racism. Okay, I'm not crazy. What do I know? Now comes the preacher part, the real. What do I mean by this? It's that, isn't there something false in this respectful, multiculturalist to tolerance my God, that's, it's, for me, political correctness is still inverted racism. It's still, you're just fighting all the time. Isn't it that, let's cut the crap. Let's say we want to become friends. Isn't it that in order for us to signal to each other that we really want to be friends, mm -hmm. there has to be a politically incorrect ex exchange of obscenity. You know, some dirty joke, whatever, whose meaning is... Cut the crap, we are now real friends. And okay. I can tell you this from my wonderful experience here. You wanted a shocking story, you will hear it. How did I become here a friend, a true friend? I'm not advising anybody to do it. It was a risk gesture, but it worked wonderfully. With a, with a, with a, with a, a black African-American guy, no? How did okay. I become? We were very friendly already, but not really. And then I risked and told him, it's a horrible thing I wore on you. Is it true that you blacks... Not only you have, you know, a big penis, no, but that you can even move it. So if you have on your leg above your knee a fly, you can buff, smash it with your penis. The guy embraced me and told me, dying of laughter, now you can call me a nigger. Like, you know, when blacks tell you you can call me a nigger means they, they really accept you, no? I mean, it, you know what I mean? The only way to fight racism is to mockingly play it to the end. And I claim if it's immediately discernible that you are not a racist if you do it properly, how should I put it, no? I mean, my God, I want to redeem the left from this uh, politically correct stuffiness and worry and so on and so on. This worked in my own country. Do you know the story that I always repeat in ex-Yugoslavia? Before the country turned nationalistic from the mid-80s onwards, we, different nations, were all the time telling dirty racist jokes, not against each other, but Above us to others. I met a Serb friend. I told him, did you hear the last one about Slovenes? He told me, did you hear the last one about Serbs or Montenegro and so on? Typically, when ethnic tensions really started to explode, these jokes disappeared. Only mm -hmm. now they are around. So I just, <coughs> sorry, what I am, where Republicans want, this is another symptom for me, is that how left liberals today have this upper class patronizing attitude which is an attitude as far as i can judge of deep distrust toward rednecks ordinary people and so on and so on it's typical that sarah palin with her blue collar husband although it's a fake blue collar i know but he is uh, republican sorry she, they are i think in an intelligent way mobilizing trying to mobilize uh, even the whatever what once was called a, a, a working class vote. And it's the mm -hmm. same phenomenon in Europe even more. In Europe, isn't this a sad thing? 
the only serious, not fringe, leftist parties of 1%, the only serious political force which still appeals to working class are the right-wing populists, Le Pen in France, Haider in Austria, and so on and so on. Uh, this is my maybe, maybe utopia. I know that Howard Dean tried to do it, but it didn't catch up. It wasn't Howard Dean, I remember four years ago, the only Democrat who tried a little bit of this left populist rhetoric, no? Uh, remember? For... Just barely, I mean, just barely. Yeah, but already it was too much. It ruined him, I claim. Already it was too much. It, it ruined, it, it, it disturbed, I claim, too much, this <coughs> sensitivity, whatever. No, but, uh, how should I put it? Uh, I hope that I got my basic message through, which is, yeah, yeah, we yeah. really need to withdraw and understand, my God. My basic message is even a more pessimistic one. Dangerous moments are coming. Dangerous moments are always also a chance to do something. But in such dangerous moments, you have to think. You have to try to understand. And today, obviously, all the predominant narratives, the old liberal left welfare state narrative, the postmodern third way left narrative, the uh, neoconservative narrative, of course, the old standard Marxist narrative, they don't work. We don't have a narrative. What? Where are we? Where are we going? There is, of course, a vague discontent, this uh, Porto Alegre thing about dangers of global capitalism. But my God, I, uh, uh, I, uh, when I, uh, when I uh, 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 met Naomi Klein, I tried to talk this about her, and she's also afraid, even she, the great left, left icon, to commit herself. Like, what to do? Like, you know, these very stupid elementary questions. Is capitalism here to stay? Are there serious limits to capitalism? Can we imagine a popular mobilization outside democracy? Or mm. is this enough? Should we play this game? Or how should we properly react to ecology? What does it mean, or the biogenetic stuff? What does it mean how to deal with intellectual property today, and so on and so on? I mean, things are happening, and we don't yet have a proper approach. To them. The, the, it's the, not that we don't have answers. Now, this will be my formula, sorry. It's not only that we don't have answers, we don't even have the right questions. That's Amen. the problem. Amen. Yeah. I did my big thought now. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> well, the rest is details. Let me, let me reframe it in, in movie terms, and you, you know everything. Ah, I love movies. this. Now uh, you are talking my language. Yeah, but to paraphrase you, uh, tell us everything we want to know about Wall Street and capitalism, but we're afraid to ask Oliver Stone. Ah, it's good that you mentioned this example, because Oliver Stone is for me, although I appreciate some of his works and so on, is for me a good example of how, how to put it, the, me uh, the way you deliver a message undermines the message. Even if his message is often progressive, the way he delivers the message is the opposite. Like Oliver Stone Wall Street, of course, it's his Wall Street, No. We saw the movie, you did, yes, I hope. Of Michael, isn't the paradox that although officially the story is supposed to be a condemnation of this immoral profiteering Wall Street tycoons like the, uh, what's it called Gordon Gecko, the bad guy, yes. the Michael. Greed, greed but, is good and all that. Yeah, yeah. But isn't it that now ask yourself if you are a normal human being, and I am here, ask yourself an elementary question. Isn't Gordon Gecko, Michael Douglas, the only truly charismatic, attractive person in the movie? 
All the jokes are his. I know all that. Do you need a friend? Buy yourself a dog. Breakfast is for wimps and so on. Name it, no? All the libidinal attraction, all the fascination of the film is on his side. And what do you get as the opposite? The old paternal patriarchal narrative of uh, the son returning to his true authentic father. It's basically... Did you notice this, that this is one of the big obsessions of Oliver Stone? You find the formula in a couple of his films. Of His st- basic narrative is a son split between good or bad father. Even his first hit, Platoon. The good, bad father is Tom Berenger, the good father is Willem Dafoe. Split between two paternal figures, at the end you find the way towards, you find the way towards good father. So, but back to my analysis. So, what Oliver Stone does often, again, is that he tries to be a good guy in the sense of, you know, criticizing the excesses of capitalism, blah, blah, blah. But the way he delivers the message betrays it in a way. And their ideology remains. In a similar way, I'm distrustful about great Hollywood uh, hits, uh, uh, anti-capitalist hits, like, you know, Pelican Brief, uh, all the president's men, and so on. They appear to be very critical, these new left Hollywood thrillers, like, again, Pelican Brief, and so on. Do you put Syriana Syriana in that bag? Uh, Syriana is more complex, that's why it relatively failed. I like the ambiguity of the film. It's very ambiguous. I liked when, you know why I like this kind of films? Which is why also my favorite Spielberg is Artificial Intelligence. It failed because kind of a, this basic narrative that people expect, it didn't come through. The narrative got caught into its own over complexity, but uh, back to Pelican Brief. It may appear anti-capitalist. Big companies corrupted. The corruption goes up to the president. But the underlying message is nonetheless, what a great country we are that an ordinary journalist, honest guy can overthrow the president and the great company or whatever. No, it's this underlying, underlying optimism that I distrust. But let me give you another two examples. It sounds a little like Michael Clayton, too, the, the, good, the one good lawyer in a, in a rotten, rotten barrel. Yeah, but Michael Clayton is, I think, if I remember it correctly, a little bit more ambiguous because his victory at the end is not totally unambiguous, how should I put it? No. no? It's a, a little bit more, it's, it's, it is more ambiguous in the sense that, okay, I win this one, but the, the global shit remains the global shit, how should Amen. I put it? No? That's what I, that's what I like. No, no, no. I, I mean, many of my leftist friends laugh at these Hollywood progressives like, uh, uh, George Clooney, but I think, no, they are not totally bad. Often they do an honest <laughs> job. No, 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 I'm get ready to give a chance, but you know what worries me? Let me go on. Uh, for example, where do I see Hollywood ideology and so on? Take a film like the new Batman, uh, The Dark Knight. Which I haven't seen, but go ahead. No, I also haven't seen it, but I talk about it. My God, <laughs> I'm a theorist, I'm a Hegelian. I don't have to see something in order to talk about it. No. Okay, two, two things about it that I don't like a priori. First, uh, this psychologizing, the human side, you know, it's all the time with these superheroes, it's the same with, Cy- uh, with Spider-Man and so on. Uh, the, the story is, you know, critics even hailed it, like, it's no longer Batman or Superman or Spider-Man, just a flat cartoon hero. It's, we see his traumas, his anxieties, uncertainties, and so on, no? It is as if this, I'm also a human with my limitations, it is as if 
this makes it more authentic. I think this is how ideology works today. When I was in Israel, I saw the same thing. The IDF, Israel Defense Forces, is a very intelligent operation. Their self-presentation is not, we are the perfect Israeli soldiers, we can, one battalion of us can defeat an Arab army. No, it's, we are afraid when there is a battle, we cry. Uh, as one Israeli officer put it, military is not in our genes. You know, we are humans like we all are. In this sense, in a nice way, you avoid asking a question, but if you are a human, why are you doing what you are doing there? I mean, you know what I mean? It's, so that's one thing. The other thing is where I find very, the least to say is ambiguous, Batman. Doesn't it contain this message at the end that the necessity of a lie to save public morality. You know how I read this, Prince told me. The Batman ends so that uh, the, the, uh, the one who was looked at the beginning, uh, 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 district, new district attorney who is a popular hero, is discovered to be himself a murderer. And the solution at the end of the film is that Batman heroically takes these murders upon himself because he and another politician, his friends, judged that if this central figure, district attorney, would, if he were to be denounced publicly as a criminal, it would be bad for morality, for public ethics, and so on. So this idea, uh, we need a lie to save the system. This is a very dangerous message, this need of a lie, and that's mm. the message of the film. There you find ideology. The same, maybe you heard it, my favorite example of ideology at its pure, pure, purest. Uh, Kung Fu Panda, an apparently innocent uh, uh, cartoon. It's an incredible film. On the one hand, you have all this Kung Fu, sacred, faith, oriental mysticism, combined with the utter cynicism. They make fun of their own ideology all the time. But how these two attitudes are combined? You can be cynical, you dismiss everything, but at the same time, although you make fun and cynical, you still act as if you believe in it. And if I'm permitted to repeat my old joke, isn't this like the story... I always quote it, the answer uh, Niels Bohr gave when he was asked, why do you have the superstitious item above the door of your country house, horseshoe, which prevents evil spirits to enter, even if you don't believe in this kind of magic? You know, his answer was, of course, I don't believe in it, but I have it there because I was told that it works even if you don't believe in it. That's, that's the message of Kung Fu Panda, how to be totally naively ideological, but at the same time utterly cynical. You can make fun of everything, but the system of belief goes on functioning. It's a wonderful diagnosis of where we are. In this sense, I believe in Hollywood. You can learn really everything you want to learn from Hollywood about where we are ideologically today. You've covered a lot of ground. This reminds me also of something I've heard you say, that, uh, that kids believe in Santa Claus to reassure their parents. Parents say, yes, we believe in Santa Claus to reassure the kids. So it's one great circular... Uh, yeah, but the, the mystic is that, that nobody really believes. Everybody just presupposes that somebody else believes. Nobody believes. But the whole system of belief functions. That's the miracle of this presupposed belief, no? Okay, but and, I, and, I wonder, and I wonder, incidentally, but this would be now to, to step from here into more serious theory. One would have to ask... What do we mean when we believe? Do we really believe? You know, there are wonderful essays. For example, the French historian Paul Vane wrote a wonderful short book with a wonderful title also, Did the Ancient Greeks Really Believe in Their Myths? Like, 
when they said uh, uh, when they, when they said Zeus Aphrodite did they really believe that if you climb to the top of the mountain Olympus of course not so what did they mean when they evoked gods what do we mean today i claim that the only one but even about them i have doubts some fundamentalists really believe but for the majority of us belief doesn't mean you really believe it it's more like a kind of a symbolic commitment okay it's, it's a complex question but you see here theory begins yes yes i i think that in order to be in the authentic sense a true believer not fundamentalist sense it doesn't mean that you really believe it's more an ethical commitment for example when you say i believe in human equality in human dignity yes you don't believe that people are really equal or whatever it's just an ethical commitment to act as if this is a fact and so on which is why paradoxically i claim that the true believers are always atheists you know that your belief has no foundation it's a kind of a crazy wager mm. i know people are shit and so on but i will act as if they have dignity and so on but this is theory okay ask me another question well the the question in my mind is after the wall street meltdown uh what do we believe about capitalism free capitalism as we call it and and if we get settled with a you know trillion dollar bill for this uh what you know by by a shuffle of committees in washington uh what do we really believe about democracy uh first democracy i think uh, as to democracy the kung fu panda formula fits perfectly I mean, like mm. nobody really believes in democracy, but we act all as if we believe. But the more interesting question for me is uh, this uh, uh, Wall Street meltdown. No, I yeah. think now I will talk in an old-fashioned Marxist way, which is, I think, appropriate here. The main task of the ruling ideology today, no, is to make this crisis, this meltdown, appear not as a something inscribed into the very dynamic of the system. But some kind of a contingent uh, malfunctioning of the system due to I don't know bad legislation, bad politics, and so on to sacrifice individuals, wrong decisions, and to save the system. I think that what and this is what everybody is looking for today. This, unfortunately, I think this reading will win. The reading which will redeem the system. No, it wasn't in the system itself. Just some wrong decisions. I don't know. Republicans will say, "You saw, we were too, we we make too much trust. We didn't regulate it enough, or we re, or we overregulated in, and mm. so on and so on." You know, like to make it to make it contingent. Like we need to put it. And I'm consciously ironic here. You know that this was the problem that our great comrade Stalin, uh, when things start to get wrong with five-year plan. No, the point was how to save the party. The idea was it must be traitors. You need traitors. No, <laughs> you need traitors to save the system so that you can say yes, there are troubles, but it's not we, the Communist Party. Our five-year plan is the English spies, saboteurs, and so on. Mm. Here, okay. Hopefully we don't go so far. No, we will not. Hopefully discover a Trotsky Jewish plot against the meltdown behind the meltdown. But the tendency will be to to localize culpability. And I think what is the true question to approach is precisely what is it in the system itself today with all these highly virtualized uh, future speculations and so on, which renders it so fragile that everything appears. So firm, but all of a sudden, it's like kind of a financial tsunami. 
the edifice which you think it's so firm, all of a sudden it starts to melt down. No? Again, that's for me the true task. That's for me the crucial point. This is for me a duty of a truly progressive, not only Marxist, whatever this means today, but even Democrat today is, to really ask where is the danger in the, where is the flaw in the system itself, not necessarily, and not say we should then do a revolution, but at least we can fight such dangers better if we are aware what fundamental flaw in the system conditions them. I mean, what annoys me with Republican or Democratic mainstream, more Republican, is that they act as if you know, oh, this was just some mismanagement or whatever. Well, it's it's in the media too. It's this, but it's the basic. Uh, the problem with Abu Ghraib was a few bad apples. Uh, so so we'll turn the page and keep going. Uh, exactly, exactly, exactly. Yes, but again, here I must specify my position. The problem for Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo and so on for me is not the fact of torture as torture as such. Here I'm a very cynical realist. When friends tell me, but wait a minute, in China or I don't know where they probably torture infinitely more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, I know. But nonetheless, what I find it dangerous is the way we publicly talk about torture. This is for me, again, a sign of a dangerous regression. Things that a couple of years ago were unimaginable as a topic of polite public debate, yes. torture and so on. Now we can simply talk about them. And, we're not, and I'm not engaged here in America bashing. Listen, in Europe, it's the same. I remember 20 years ago. The very, we had, as you know, these neo-fascist parties, no? Yes. In Italy and so on. Austria, France. Twenty years ago, it was a silent pact. Everyone respected it. That, okay, we had to tolerate them. It's a democracy, but they shouldn't be allowed to govern. It was a total taboo to imagine a neo-fascist party in a government coalition. Mm. Now we swallowed it in Italy, in Austria, maybe in France, and so on and so on. That's what worries me. This how should I call it, regression of public standards. And in Europe, it's a very dangerous tendency. Now the tendency in Europe is to reha <coughs> not so much to rehabilitate fascism as to nivelize the distinction, like wasn't in a way communism worse? And then the other part of the story is that you try to uh, introduce secondary distinctions within fascism. Like Hitler was bad, but... Was Mussolini really so bad? Was Franco really so bad? And so on. You know, this kind of relativization, I think, again, that this is what I call the silent ethical revolution, that we are not even aware of how our standards are changing. We simply, mm. something that was unimaginable 10, 15 years ago, today it's a matter of fact. That's what worries me. And here I think maybe Obama has some chance if he will be, elected. Not so much in uh, doing some big economic changes, but in changing, setting the new coordinates, the new limits of what we can talk about, of how you talk about problems. This is not unimportant. It's not we are just talking. One of the most stupid wisdoms hmm. is, oh, these are just words, we need to do something. No, we need words today. We need to talk differently. My God, what we do is always rooted in how we talk in the sense of how we perceive a situation, and so on and so on. I think cynics who think, oh, these are just words, cynics are fatally wrong here. So, Zizek, how do you suppose Barack Obama, if he were elected, might mediate this, this uh, 
transition toward a multicentric, multicolored, uh, global consciousness? Is, is that a strand uh, that we want to invest hope in? Uh, not too much, but yes, yes. I think that there is, uh, I mean, I'm not saying here even as a leftist, but almost, how to put it, in the interest of the United States, no? That you just do a couple of things, like change the way you deal with allies, uh, uh, do some things like uh, Guantanamo, maybe Cuba. I was very sad when Obama, uh, when Obama made a compromise there and basically... Uh, didn't uh, committed himself to prolonging uh, the the embargo of Cuba. No, I think sure. from a liberal standpoint, this is a madness. I totally believe those liberals who claim that. Listen, if America were totally to to abolish embargo, communism is over in half a year up to a year in Cuba, or yes. they will have to isolate themselves totally to change into a truly closed society. Mm. Can you imagine Cuba surviving? Tens of thousands, maybe more Americans. Everybody would want to visit Cuba. You know, it would be in all the human contacts and so on and so on. It, it, it would have changed the entire, the entire scene. So I think he has some space for gestures, Obama, which one shouldn't dismiss them as, oh, this is only rhetorics and so on and so on. They would have changed the entire scene. I think that Obama, in this sense, without doing any big gestures and so on, has has a chance. But what Obama may be, I'm not sure if he's ready to do it, you know. A true revolution would have been to rehabilitate, he had some rhetoric in this sense, and I agreed with it, to stop this Washington bashing and so on, to rehabilitate state. My God, state, democratic representation, they can do horrible things, they can, only, they can also do great things, and so on. Yeah. I think it's, one should end with this cheap populism, and so on. That would, no, he can do things, they may appear minor, but they are really not minor. You know, the other lesson, often forgotten about big changes, is that you always start small. You know how, I know this from my own past in communism, no? You know, yes. you made communists made a couple of in power, a couple of small compromises like Gorbachev just allowed a little bit glasnost here, there. And then all of a sudden everything changes. No, no, no. You always open up a way, not the way to big deeds are usually small gestures, which you think, oh, this is nothing, just a small symbolic compromise. It means really nothing. But all of a sudden you trigger it. The great avalanche. We must speak a little bit about Russia. Russia is back in, in American consciousness. Um, and around Georgia, some people would love to revive a Cold War. Sarah Palin seemed uh, to, to, to love the prospect of uh, a NATO rescue of President Saakashvili. What, what is to say about uh, what's going on in Russia and Russia and the world? It's another example, I think, of this so-called... Uh, 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 authoritarian capitalism, you know, when uh, uh, first one thing I was in Russia and things are in a way even more sad than the American media represent them. And that's what makes me sad. Like, it's not that there is a thriving democratic civil society brutally oppressed by Putin and so on. The tragedy is that according to all, even Western, I follow them, opinion polls, like 80 to 90 percent of people really distrust more democracy and want stability under Putin. 
And you cannot dismiss this as only uh, Putin's, uh, Putin's uh, control of the media manipulation or whatever. I think, again, the West has a co-responsibility here. The way when United States did have a much stronger influence there, when Yeltsin was in power, no? How democracy was discredited throughout the 90s. How democracy was experienced as equal national humiliation and all that stuff and so on and so on. So again, you know, the problem is that something new is emerging there in Russia. It's not, it's of course not uh, uh, not Western liberal democracy, but there are freedoms up to a point in cultural life, in economy, and so on and so on. There is genuine private property. Like, don't have any illusions. To put it in old-fashioned Marxist terms, Putin is not the president of some new hidden communist tendency. He is a president of the nouveau riche. His deal with the nouveau riche is, you leave politics to me, I secure your safe rule. And the problem with Berezovsky, Khodorovsky, and so on, it's only that they broke this pact. But, again, Putin is not the president against capitalism. He is, his class base are the new rich, not working people or KGB or, or whoever you want. So let's not have, let's not have the illusion, something new. You see, this is what worries me, that you can have capitalist dynamics with authoritarian rule. This is something totally new, my God. Up till now, we could always laugh at authoritarian guys. Some authoritarian guy takes it over, and we, Western liberals, could sit down and say, ho, ho, give him 10 years, it will be another Zimbabwe, Mugabe, they will screw up, and so on. What if they don't screw up, my God? What if they do better than, than we for their own country, I mean, economically, no? No, 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 the situation here is a, is, a, is a true problem. So again, of course, Russia is turning into a new form of authoritarian rule. But first we should ask is, where did we fail when we had a chance? We, yes. I mean, West, where Russia was open to the West. What did we do wrong? The way we were treating Russia, the advices we were giving them, and so on. For example, it's absolutely clear that the way Russia t uh, introduced capitalism in the early 90s was the very, the very opposite of the way China did it. And China, the Chinese way proved much wiser to do it, starting with consumer, with small, uh, companies which produce uh, mass products for con for consume and so on on the margins. Russians did the exact opposite. They started with banks, natural resources, mining and so on. So because of this, how should I put it, most of their capitalism till now is, how should I call it, non-productive capitalism. Hmm. It's quick profiteering by selling natural resources abroad and so on and so on. Quite the opposite of China. No, no, it's here. This is, I think, a, mo a model study. I really sincerely think that 19s were maybe a chance for a different global world order and that the West screw it up. So now it's, a, now it's a totally new situation. As you said, now the rule is how to cope with it. And I think where Obama does have a chance is... For example, Latin America, I think with yes. intelligent politics of United States, it can be won back. Because I think that Russia, China were in any case lost. Maybe the greatest defeat of Bush was, to put it in simplistic terms, losing Latin America. 
So, so I, I have two more questions before we're done. Two quick ones, but, but yeah, one has to do with individual ideology. One has to do with theory, and I want you to wrap that yeah. up. But the, on, on, at an individual level, you, you've said in the 80s it was all about keeping up with the Joneses. Now it became, uh, it became a matter of uh, consumers as individuals to be actualized. Yeah, Rick, I, I entered yesterday at Starbucks, and I saw Starbucks. You have now a new poster there, like, why, why, why ethos? Why ethics matters. And then they describe again how with each coffee you help a Guatemalan kid, all that stuff, and so on and so on. That's the whole point. Even so, when so they, what, what, is the, what is the ideology uh, that's being sort of market tested by Starbucks and being sold to us in this election year? Well, well I, first, I don't think there is a direct connection between what big companies are doing there and with. Uh, but in a way, you are right. I think that. Uh, as we all know, capitalism is one big, meaningless, profiteering machinery. That's great about it. That's not even a critical point, no? Mm. And all the time, the problem is how to rendering meaningful. Like, no, that is just not about, not just about making money and so on and so on. And I think paradoxically, uh, the left, this liberal, com- liberal capitalist strategy, Starbucks strategy of uh, making consumation um, meaningful experience ecologically, spiritually, and what Republicans are doing through their our country first, patriotism and so on and so on. Hmm. They all know that this pure market consumerist model is not enough. You need something more. And these are only different answers, but they are all reactions. The big beast in the background is global capitalism. It's this big capitalist machinery, which is why I don't take very seriously, again, this uh, Republican rhetoric. It's for me another version of Starbucks. It's lipstick. It's strictly lipstick. It's, you can have this ethos lipstick, Starbucks lipstick. You can have the patriotic lipstick and so on, no? Like real hardworking America, whatever, no? But that's not what our system is. Last question. You say maybe we ought to just go home and read or think or, mm. uh, or stop doing things, just sit there. Uh, give us a short reading list or meditation list on theory. Wh- wh- who, are the, who are the sources of the kind of vision or wisdom that might get us to the next to the next round. That's a nice, dirty question, because I will be very <laughs> honest and frank here. I don't have a clear answer in the sense of I don't think this good theory even even exists. But I think there are some beginnings. For example, I don't even fully agree with him politically, but how is that guy called? He's a bestseller even now. Thomas Frank, uh, what, what happened in Kansas? Yes, he's got a new one, too. I know, I know, I know. He at least is asking the right questions, namely drawing the attention to the fact that, uh, how should I put it, the mystery of how ideology politics functions today, like Republicans, they are saying one thing, they are doing a totally different thing, and how the public accepts this. The, how we are really have a politics functioning functioning in a new way. So uh, do this thing. Then uh, do uh, 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 there is some interesting. I don't know even the authors' uh, economic theories about financial markets today and so on and so on. No, but I think for the ma- majority of people, I would just say, uh, 
go move a step beyond this standard liberal accusation of 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 how fundamentalist Bush and so on. I mean, Republican fundamentalists are the danger towards the United States. The point is to move a little bit further from this liberal self-satisfaction and to start asking questions. But what if we we liberal, politically correct, multiculturalist left? What if we are up to a point at least? responsible for it where are we also wrong where even if we criticize it where we play the same game for example it's not a big example but one theoretician that interests me a lot is uh, wendy brown the partner of judith butler who recently wrote uh, a wonderful book i I forgot the title on tolerance where she points in a wonderful way what is problematic about today's ideology of Tolerance. It's very self-critical of the left itself. So here I'm very old-fashioned. It's not enough just to attack. We should always ask the question, where is our responsibility in it? So I hear Thomas Frank, I hear Wendy Brown. Make one more, and maybe an artist, maybe a novelist, maybe a poet, maybe, maybe a painter. Uh, I will musician. give you a shock. You will get what you want here. I think two left Hollywood films. Now comes the final shock. Great. Fight Club 300. 300, I think it's a progressive film. I totally reject reading 300 Spartans, you know. It's a, a kind of, uh, it's a kind of uh, support for American intervention. Quite of the, on the contrary. I mm. think the left should recapture back this fighting spirit. Why should we leave to the right-wingers notions like solidarity, community spirit, sacrifice, discipline? We should take it over. I'm for a military, militarized left. I'm for disciplinary left. Mm. Sounds crazy, but that's me. Some people sounds called me a, left, a leftist fascist. Why not? Sounds like William James and the moral equivalent of war. Absolutely. What's the problem? His brother, Henry James, is for me the greatest. Oh, American you and writer. I, you and I are twins, man. You yeah, are... can you, can you, uh, but uh, let me finish with a detail. His wings of the dove. No? Oh. Oh. Kate, Kate Croy is the ethical hero. All others are soft. It's Mealy, screw her. She should disappear. The, the, the boy, how is he called? The hero who marries Mealy in a plot with Kate Croy in Wings Dencher, of the Dog. Uh, Tom, uh, what's his name? Dencher. Yeah, Dencher. Soft liberal, screw him. Kate Croy, communist. Kate Croy, my hero. That's how you treat friends. Yeah. <laughs> That's fascinating. Oh, man, we, gotta, we should talk once a week. This is, this is fantastic. Ah, I will be the weekly idiot. Why not? I would like to be Rush Limbo of the left here. No, no, I want to be Rush. You'll be my guest. Okay, okay, okay. This is great. And we'll talk, we'll, we'll read a little chapter of Wings of the Dove every episode. Absolutely. We should have, like, meeting every Sunday morning, like church, you know. Today, friends, you will be the priest. We will start reading this chapter, you know. Ooh, Kate Croy, the heroine, the, the, the tough-minded, get that money, get the money and get out of here. Absolutely. She is the Marxist. She is the Marxist, revolutionary, Leninist even, I would say. Woof. It's the only, it's also the only great novel of Henry James that made a great movie, in my opinion. Yeah, 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 yeah. Who was Kate Croy? That uh, Helen Bonham Carter, no? Absolutely. And there was an Iranian uh, screenwriter whose name I forget, but but we'll we'll get it. We'll talk about it again. No, 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 no. Absolutely. Slavoj Žižek, this is such a pleasure. It was a pleasure. Such a pleasure. Bless you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.